Uh, my name's Caden, and I'm going to be bringing the Bible to you this morning from Joshua 6, verses 1 to 21. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, no one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give out a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse, and then, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, and everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. Then he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the Ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests, carrying the seven trumpets, went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord, and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Come on, everyone. Uh, and thanks for reading, Caden. Uh, it's nice to be together, really kind of special to be together. If this is your first week back since we came back, then welcome. We hope you are loving it. It's also special to have you joining us online. If you have to be online for some reason, um, please do send us a message, send us something in the chat. We'd love to know that you're there and love to know how we can support you in following Jesus. Uh, we are 
about halfway through our series, uh, Christianity, Good and True, thinking about the kind of truthfulness of the Christian faith and how it's actually good news, it's not embarrassing, it's not shameful. Uh, In order to do that, we're picking up some of the things that people throw at us, saying, actually, what about this? Isn't this part of Christianity something that you should be ashamed of? And we're taking a good close look at it and seeing if it actually holds up. Today, we're picking up the topic of violence. Violence in the Bible. Violence done by God in the Bible. The Bible has developed this reputation for being outlandishly violent at times, like shockingly violent, disgustingly violent. Violent in a way that today uh, violates our principles and our standards for what is right and what is acceptable. Violent in a way that, you know, so the, so the story goes in wider society, we Christians should be deeply embarrassed. We should be deeply shamed. We should maybe even consider giving this whole Christianity thing the flick because of this side of God that we see. It's true. We do find this kind of violence in the Bible. And I think it's also true that when we find this kind of violence in the Bible, we find it uncomfortable. Take Joshua 6 that Caden just read for us. Joshua 6 is, is one of these battles that gets fought in the, uh, the capture of Canaan. And it's describing the capture of one particular city, the city of Jericho. And it says, verse 20, When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, the men gave a loud shout. The wall collapsed. Everyone charged straight in. They took the city. If you've ever been involved in kids' church or in Scripture, or if you've ever read a kid's Bible, you know, this is a story that we love, right? Because it's so act-outable. You know, you get the kids to get out their little trumpets, and they walk around in circles, and down come the walls, and it's, it's kind of fun. It's a cool thing to visualize. But it's not the end of the story, is it? It keeps on going. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, Men and women, young and old, sheep and donkeys. Thankfully, you don't usually see that getting acted out in kids' church. Israel gets the win, but it comes with this total destruction. The first half has you amazed, but the second half has you squirming a bit. Is this right? Here's a couple more clangers that you might come across as you read your way through the Bible. Deuteronomy 32, it says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. That's, it's God saying that. Or Deuteronomy 7, you must destroy all the people the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look at them with pity. Do not serve their gods. They will be a snare to you. Sometimes stuff in the Bible is violent. What do you make of it? Well, uh, Richard Dawkins, he's... Uh, put it like this, he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, ha <laughs> ha, good joke, uh, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Not a guy to pull his punches, good old Ricky D. You can trust him to, to put it clearly and bluntly. He looks at the violence in the Bible and he concludes God is a monster. And hot tip, you probably shouldn't be friends with monsters. Now, others, others choose to do with memes, what Dawkins does with books. Here's something that you might see a, a kind of Christianity-hating friend share on Facebook. Parental advisory contains scenes of violence, sex, the occult, immorality, genocide, not suitable for children. So what, 
What do we make of this? What is going on with the violence in the Old Testament? And why, why do I and so many others not consider it to be the kind of faith killer that plenty of people suppose that it must be? If a friend came up to me and, and wanted to kind of make sense of all of this, uh, here's some of the things that I would tell them. The first one is this. Firstly, it's not unreasonable. It is not unreasonable. When we see God kind of sending off the Israelites to take on the Canaanites, we think in our heads, this is kind of endless, mindless, heartless slaughter, all for the sake of getting this rather crummy bit of land. You know, Canaan is this, is this place being lived in by some lovely indigenous folk. They're happily minding their own business in their, in their quaint little villages. When suddenly out of nowhere in comes landless, grumpy Israel and they're demanding to be given what is not rightfully theirs. And when they don't get their way, they pick up their swords and start killing the poor old inhabitants. It seems like horrible injustice. That's the kind of caricature of it in our heads that so many people believe, but that's not it. That's not it. What happens as we see Israel coming into Canaan and taking on the people who are living there is that a response to evil is happening. Evil is taking place and the Creator, the one we look to for justice, He is saying something must be done about this. God really hammers this point home. Before a single battle has even been fought, that Canaan is in a bad, dark, horrible, evil place. He says to, to Israel in Deuteronomy 9, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No! It's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Canaanites, these, these many little kingdoms in the land of Canaan, they're living in the land that God had indeed promised to Israel beforehand, but they have embraced evil. Like they're, they're not kind of dabbling in it on the sides. They're not kind of accidentally wandering into evil when they're not thinking. Now, theirs is a wholehearted embrace of what is evil. It's summed up, I think, really well in the worship practices that they went in to their god Molech. Molech represented by a kind of bull-headed idol statue. The statue is made out of metal. And children were sacrificed to Molech. And we know from the ancient accounts that, that a fire would be lit in the belly of this metal statue. And it would get scorchingly hot. And then a child would be placed in the outstretched arms of the statue to be burned to death. And they would beat loud drums and, and play flutes to drown out the noise because no one wants to hear the screams, right? This is the reason why God is sending Israel into wage war. It's not just because he's on about this real estate. And it, this, this isn't some kind of random attack on an innocent bystander by like a psycho with just a thirst for blood. It's not that. War comes, yes. Death comes, yes. But only because God cannot stand what these people are up to. He looks at the situation and says, justice must be served. If you're somebody who sees injustice, if you're somebody who sees rape and murder and violence and abuse and you think something must be done, then the God of the Bible says, yes, I absolutely agree. We sometimes 
We sometimes wonder today, why does God not do more about the evil and suffering in the world? And in this case, the conquest of Canaan, that's exactly what God is doing. He is using His people, Israel, to bring an end to these horrific practices, to kind of stop them spreading like a virus. Does God enjoy it? No. Is it the right thing? Yes. Here's how he puts it in Ezekiel 18. He says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Am I not rather pleased when they turn from their ways and live? When God brings violence on people, there's a reason. And it's not because it brings him some kind of sadomasochistic joy. It's because he cares about what he has made and the people he has made in bigger and deeper ways than we can kind of wrap our heads around. He cares that evil things do not be allowed to belong in this world. He cares that people are held to account for their actions. He cares that evil is given as marching orders. We know that one day that will come in fully and finally and completely and and wholesomely across the whole of creation. We hang out for that day. And in the Old Testament, we see little glimpses of it coming. Evil will not have the last laugh. That's the message of God's conquest of these nations. So that, that's, that's one of the first things that I want to say to a friend, pondering this topic of violence and the Bible and God. First thing to say is it's not as flat out unreasonable as you might suppose it is. The second thing to say is that it's also not as horrid as it might have seemed. Now, the criticisms that kind of get thrown our way about the, the violence in the Bible, they make it sound as though what's taking place was just this kind of mindless, wholesale genocide. But you look a little closer, you press the details and you suddenly start realising it's not quite that. These wars against evil are being targeted against the power and against the leadership and against the influence that these nations have. But it's being done in such a way that it seems as though many of the people of the nation are being left unharmed. For instance, these cities that we describe, that we hear of getting wiped out, scholars have this hunch that they're more military outposts than kind of massive civilian population centres. We hear the word city and we just assume, like here in our modern world, that cities are where people live, massive suburbs. But that's a relatively modern thing. In the ancient Middle East, usually these walled cities were reserved for being fortified military garrisons. You know, they're they're little forts that are placed in strategic spots, usually along roadways, so that they can protect all of the civilians who live in the surrounding countryside, in their little, tiny little villages and tiny little farms. They're spread far and wide and there's a fort in the middle of it all, guarding the road, protecting an entire area. Archaeology kind of bears this out. Archaeologists have gone into Jericho and they've looked at things from the era in which this all takes place, the conquest, and they've they've concluded that chances are the place was home to about 150 people. And the evidence seems to indicate that these 150 people, they're not raising their families in this place, but they are mostly soldiers. They're there to do a job. They're there to guard the area. And so when the walls come tumbling down and Israel rushes in and and, and death ensues, we shouldn't be picturing a civilian massacre. We should be picturing a military fort getting defeated. 
Sometimes there are civilians in these places. We know that for certain. We know that through the, the story of Rahab. She's there in Jericho in order to serve these military soldiers. And it's interesting that the one time we hear of a civilian being in one of these cities, she gets rescued. She's not subject to the judgment that comes upon the city. And the same goes for the, for the kind of description of uh, the wiping out being complete. You occasionally get these lines that sort of talk about women and men and children and young and old and, and, and the sheep and the camels and the cattle and everything getting wiped out. And you hear that kind of total destruction language and you think, crikey, this, this sounds like it's absolutely total and it sounds abysmal. When you actually start pressing the details though, when you read those lines, which happen in uh, few and far between, but when you read them in context, you start realising that there's a whole lot of hyperbole going on in these instances. It's the ancient equivalent of kind of trash talk between sports fans. You know, I might say that the Panthers absolutely thrashed the Rabbitohs, drove them into the dust, but at no point were people being whipped or, you know, run over with bulldozers, right? It, it, we, we use words to express a victory, words to express a defeat. In the ancient world, this kind of hyperbole was used all the time to talk about the results of a war. Now, there's a really famous instance of Egypt. Egypt liked to record all of its military victories. They wrote them on these stone tablets because they were really proud of it. And at one time, they talk about a victory in the 15th century and they say that they annihilated totally the army of Mitanni. Within an hour, we made them non-existent. And they say all of that, but what they actually mean is we won this one battle. Because then you keep on reading down the stone and you discover that the people of Mitanni were still there to annoy Egypt for like another century after that battle. Sounds like genocide, but it's actually just code for we really kicked their butts today. And scholars are fairly sure that it's the same sort of thing going on when you find this extreme language getting used in the Bible to describe Bible victories. Occasionally you read about absolute total destruction being wrought and you think, oh gosh, is this genocide? In Joshua chapter 12, Israel gets this amazing victory over a massive coalition of, of Canaanite kings. And it says, today we defeated all the kings of Canaan. Today we destroyed all of the Canaanites. Today we captured all of their lands. You think, whoa, massive. And then you turn to the next chapter and you discover that there's still plenty of Canaanites there, causing them all sorts of trouble. Exaggeration is happening and it's not that the Bible writers are lying. It's that they are using the exact same convention that everyone at that time used to talk about winning a war. Another really important thing to realise is that God is far more intent on driving out the Canaanites rather than wiping out the Canaanites. Like you do get these occasional little descriptions of, of absolute annihilation. Pretty rare though. 50 times across the account of the capture of Canaan, you hear the phrase, drive out. It's the language of eviction. It's the language of a landlord looking at the people who are inhabiting his house and going, you are messing things up in a bad way, I want you out. It's not immediate. You read it and you discover that this is happening across generations, decades, it's plenty of time. God acts to send out the oppressors. God says, I can't stand this. You must finish it and you must end your evil. But wholesale destruction is not what is taking place. 
When it comes to violence in the Old Testament, you've got to realize things are not quite as horrid as they might seem. Yes, God is acting decisively to bring an end to evil, to bring judgment on leaders and judgment on, on kings and judgment on those who fight for them. But we would be wrong to slip into thinking that God is just mindlessly, blatantly wiping out people just for the sake of it. God doesn't want that. And we know that God doesn't want that. And this is the last thing that we're going to see. We know that God doesn't want that because as you read through these accounts, you discover that there is always an alternative. Always an alternative to people copying this violence. Uh, there's this kind of kind of funny movie trailer on YouTube called Scary Poppins. Uh, and someone's taken Mary Poppins, you know, pure, sweet, wholesome Mary Poppins, and they've like recut it to make like a little five-minute trailer that makes it sound as though Mary Poppins is some kind of deranged psycho. You know, they take these scenes out of context, like there's a, there's a shot of kids getting shoved into a cupboard and there's the, a shot of a group of nannies getting blown away and then they, they intersperse that with like shots of Mary Poppins glowering and you think, oh, crikey, this, this lady's insane. It ends with this, this shot of these kids running away and, and the words scary Poppins appearing on the screen and you're pretty convinced this, this woman is, is in a horror movie. And the thing is, the kind of funny thing behind it all is that every single scene is there in the movie, right? They haven't reshot anything. They haven't made new scenes. They've just taken what's already in the movie and arranged it in such a way that it gives a totally different type of story. If you actually put in the real Mary Poppins DVD, watched it from start to finish, you'd go, this isn't a horror movie at all. All those scenes, when you put them in the right sort of context, when you understand them in the right order, they suddenly tell a very different story. The same is true for God. If, if you have an approach where you pick out verses that, that show violence and, and put them one after the other, then yeah, you might get the impression that God is some kind of freaky monster, but it's a different picture when you take a step back and take in the whole story. At that point, what you see is not only does this violence have a justification, but far more importantly, God does not want this. He far would prefer for someone to be on the receiving end of his compassion. There is always an alternative when it comes to this kind of violence. God is always being extremely patient with people, giving them plenty of warning, giving them opportunities to be spared. We already mentioned the story of, of Rahab in the defeat of Jericho. She's part of this wicked nation. Yes, they deserve judgment, but she hears of God. She understands his warning. And so she turns to him away from her people's ways and she is spared. I reckon maybe the best example, the gold example of this is the story of Nineveh. Nineveh is a nation, just like the kind of Canaanite nations, that it is up there in the kind of doing horrific, terrible, horrible, nasty, evil things. Uh, we know from history that the Ninevites loved to dismember their prisoners for fun. You know, it was the thing that you would go along to watch for entertainment. We know that they would love to do these kind of parades down their main street and the main attraction was uh, decapitated heads on top of poles that were being carried by the, the loved ones of that dead person. Because that's funny. And we know that, that they, they became experts in figuring out how to stretch out a human while they're still alive in order to skin them alive because that's the best way to kind of get the best skin, to hang on your walls, to show people how, how brutal and powerful you are. You get the picture, right? These are, these are horrible folk. They are so wicked that when Jonah, God's prophet, is sent to go and preach to them, he flat out refuses. No way, Jose, I am not going there. Because that would not be just as far as he's concerned. They deserve death. 
from God for what they've done. How could we possibly want to give them a chance? Jonah says to God. But that's exactly what God does want for them. God does want for them to have a chance. And so God intervenes. He makes it happen that Jonah gets there via, you know, the giant fish experience. And he talks Jonah into preaching. And the warning being delivered, Nineveh repents. No punishment comes. This evil people are still loved by God. God wants for them to have an opportunity to turn back and say, I agree with you that all of that was wrong and I am sorry for it. God wants that. He wants for these people to be safe and forgiven. It's because of who He is. Here's a description of God's heart from the book of Ezekiel. It says, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And if they do, if they do turn from their evil ways, here's how it works out. If someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right. They will surely live. This is God's heart. This is what you see when you take a step back from the the gruesome sounding texts and see the big picture. You see a God who, yes, knows that justice must be served, but who far more importantly wants for people to find mercy. You see it most clearly in Jesus, right? The point at which God's violence gets diverted and turned right back on himself. It's owned by him in a brutal way because he doesn't want it to land on people who otherwise deserve it. I love how it gets put into 1 Peter 2. It says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds, by his suffering. We get healed. The Bible has these moments of violence in it. And it might come as a shock to you if if you're kind of expecting God to never hurt a fly. But take in the bigger picture. Zoom out and think about what is taking place in our world and you start seeing that this violence is not unreasonable. It's also not as horrid as it might have first seemed. And far more importantly... God does not want for it to fall on anybody. He would much prefer that they find his forgiveness. The picture you get is not of a monster, but of a mercy bringer. That's the God we can know. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, this is weighty. It's hard to think about death and suffering and to know that we are people who deserve it. Lord, thank you that you bring justice on this earth. You promise justice. You promise that things will be put right. Thank you most of all that Jesus comes along and says that that justice can be fulfilled because he is willing to take the punishment. 
Lord, thank you that we can go free, we can be forgiven, we can be healed because violence is turned onto you. Lord, as we have friends who ponder these big questions with us, we ask that you would give us the confidence and the courage to say something helpful, to point people to who you really are, that people would see that you are the God who stands for things being put right and evil being kicked out. But far more importantly, you stand for people finding forgiveness. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.